few years ago in 2014, the United States Census Bureau, as part of their normal data collecting that they do, reported that in the United States there are, as of that, as of that time, 17.4 million children that do not have a father in their home. In addition to this, a vast number of studies since then and looking at that data have linked the absence, that absence of a father in the home to everything from increased rates in, in crime, criminal activity, uh, drug abuse, teen pregnancy, and even obesity in those children that do not have a father at home. This, of course, covers the absent fathers, but as we know, there are definitely millions more children in this country alone with fathers that may be there but are abusive or neglectful or unloving or just simply too busy to be with their children. I think it's clear from this data and from these studies that we see that in our culture and in our country today, we have a very distorted view of what it means to be a father. We have a very distorted view of what it means to be a son, and we have a very distorted view of fatherhood in general. And maybe this is some of you here today. Maybe you grew up with a father that was abusive or neglectful, or maybe not even there. Today, as we come to the next section in the Sermon on the Mount, in, in Matthew chapter 7, though, I want to look at what we have in our Heavenly Father. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. If you're using the Black Pew Bibles, that's page 812. It's Matthew chapter 7. Sorry, not 1 through 6. Uh, we're in 7 through 11. 1 through 6 was last week. 812. Read along with me. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bed, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and to read your word and to be comforted by it and to be convicted by it. We thank you that you are our Father, that we have this relationship with you as sons. Pray that as we look into your word that you would humble us through the power of your Holy Spirit work in our hearts and lives to realize the extravagant benefit and the extravagant blessings we have because you are our Father. I pray this in your name. Amen. 
So at first glance, when we look at this passage, uh, and maybe some of you have seen it this way, interpreted, um, it, it could kind of come across as a pretty kind of nice packaged up little prosperity gospel pack, package. Um, essentially, the idea of all you got to do is um, just ask God for things over and over, be really persistent, um, have faith, believe, and he'll give you whatever you want, he'll bless you, so give to the ministry and, and you know, all of these sorts of things that sort of go along with this idea of prosperity gospel. And hopefully if you guys have been here for any amount of time or um, if you're a visitor and you've done any research at all in this church, you'll know that that's not what we're going to that's not what we're going to go with this morning. Um, and I hope it comes cl- clear today why that's the case, why what we get out of this passage isn't some sort of cheap plastic substitute gospel. We don't get stuff. In this passage, what we get is a father, and I hope that we can see that and see the importance of it and see the benefits. We don't get a father like those mentioned in the statistics that's absence, absent. We get a perfect loving, caring Father that gives us what we need. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, so uh, chapters 5 through 7 that we've been looking at so far for a few months, um, the Lord, Father, God is referred to as our Father 16 different times. All right, Additionally, 24 times outside of this sermon. So it's, it's, it's a lot of times it's being referred to as a father. You can remember um, things that we're supposed, to, we're supposed to fast in secret and our father who sees in secret. We talk about that. We talk about in the, the Lord's Prayer, we refer to God as our father. And then again, here we have a reference to your father who is in heaven. Additionally, with respect to earthly fathers, Jesus has some things to say in the gospel as well. In Matthew 10, which we'll get to in the coming months, he says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Also towards the end of the gospel in chapter 19, he says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So I think it's safe to say, just by the sheer number of mentions of God as Father, and specifically within the Sermon on the Mount, that there is a focus in Matthew and in the sermon on God as our perfect and ultimate Father. The passage of the sermon that we're looking at today, I would say, really drives home the significance in a, in a crucial way at this place that we are at in the sermon. And in ex- examining this passage this morning, I want to just look at a few, few benefits that we have of God as our Father. Like I said, we've seen it as we've gone through. We've seen that He is our Father. But I think this passage really explicitly shows us what we have and what we get when we get a father in the king of the universe. First thing I want to consider is that we have a father who leads us in holiness and righteousness. Again, this is something that we see as we go throughout the sermon, right? We see it's a lot of instruction. We get 
instructions from the very beginning. We get the Beatitudes that we talked about, talking about how we should be living. We, to, we are told to be salt and light. We are told that we should have righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. We are told not to be angry in our heart. We are told not to lust. We are told not to seek easy divorce and the easy way out. We are told not to swear falsely. We are told to be willing to suffer and be reviled. We are told to love our enemies. We are told to give to the poor. We are told to fast in secret. We are told not to lay up treasures on earth. We are told not to be anxious. And we are told not to judge others in a hypocritical and hateful way. That's a lot. That's a lot of instruction. Imagine if that message was preached in one block, which is what Jesus did. And I think the way we preach, the way we have to go through it week by week and kind of you know, expound portions of the text, we miss some of that. We miss sort of the cumulative weight as all of these things stack on, stack on, stack on, stack on, and just the impossibility of it. The impossibility of, as we see all these things, feeling overwhelmed. The way we hear it, we get to go home and relax and sit down and, and do whatever and um, process it, think about it, oftentimes even forget what we heard on Sunday, right? We get time off. So we don't maybe realize how much all of this instruction piles on and adds on. And I think we need to avoid this. It's only when we see this cumulative weight of everything, all of the instruction that Jesus has given us on life in the kingdom and what that's supposed to look like and the high calling that we are called to, that we find ourselves in the deepest place of need and reliance on him. We get to this point where we're asking, how can I live like this? How can, how can I do all of these things? What do, what do I need to do? What do I need to change about my life? How do I need to apply this in my day-to-day life? How can I adjust this or adjust that or cut this out or sell this or give to this person? What can I do? How much is too much to have? How much is too little to give? And when it comes to these questions, it's far too easy and far too natural for us in our hearts, to do what? We look at all of these things that God calls us to in the kingdom, and the easiest thing for us to do is make more rules, make boundaries, to make guidelines, and to maybe even oppose those on others. And I think that's what you see in what we were looking at last week, right? The temptation is to take teaching, apply it to my life as I see fit, and then to judge others by it, to become pharisaical, to drift into thinking that, okay, I have all these things to do, don't lust, that means I need to do this one activity or not do this one activity, and then I'm good, because that's what we want. We want something we can check off. We want something to say, okay, I've done that, done that, done that, done that. But that oftentimes leads us into false obedience and not an obedience that comes from the heart. My wife and I have been talking about this a lot recently. Um, we have a friend who um, is back from where we're from, so it's not somebody around here. And she, she does a lot of blogging and, and things on the internet and started really getting convicted by a lot of the scriptures she was reading, and she was posting these uh, different verses about selling everything you have, giving up 
what you have, giving to the poor, the rich young ruler, you know, just different things that Jesus said um, about sort of the radical lifestyle that the gospel calls us to and kingdom living. And reading through it, I mean, there's a lot of great stuff there. There's a lot of things that I, I see and it's convicting to me about how maybe I could change my life and be more in line with what the gospel says. And there's a lot of great things that is just like, this is good. She's, she's seeing this and she's putting it out there and trying to tell other people about how she's growing and where she's going with things. And that's, and that's great. The, the problem came and where we've, we've been talking about this, me and my wife, is what she was writing started to turn towards how could Christians ever have this? Or Christians shouldn't own this or shouldn't do this. Christians, how could you be a Christian and, and have this much money and keep it? How could you be a Christian and have this kind of house? See what happens? We come to all this teaching, we get all these things that come to us, and we, in our pharisaical, sinful hearts, take that and, and turn it into, into more rules. So the question then that I would ask is, is coming to this passage we're at today, we've had all of these teachings come to us from Jesus. But the question I would say is, how, how do we get the aid? Where do we find the help to obey and really follow up with these things while avoiding becoming pharisaical and imposing our own rules on others? And I think the answer to that question is by realizing that we live in a kingdom, yes, but we live in a kingdom where the king is our father. The king is our dad. Secondly, and this sort of leads into this, we have a father who wants us to seek him. So we see, as we said, all of this weight of everything coming from the sermon, all of these things that we're supposed to do and trying to judge our motives and judge our hearts and, and, and know whether we're obeying this or not and how do I know if I, if I have a plank in my eye and all of this. And then we have the assurance of we have a Father who wants us to seek Him. Verses 7 and 8, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. Is the one who knocks, it will be opened. The words ask, seek, and knock here are all imperatives. They're all commands that we are instructed by the Father to earnestly seek Him. But we're not seeking Him as slaves or as servants or as enemies. We're seeking Him as our Father. We come to Him as our perfect Father who wants a relationship with us. So in the midst of this uncertainty and difficulty of seeking on how to apply these passages, even very practically as we hear preaching every single week about these hard things Jesus is saying and how we apply them to our lives, we know that we have a Father that we can run to who wants us to seek Him. So we're not, we're not living in a kingdom with a bunch of rules and, and an evil king. We're leaving in a kingdom with a God who cares for us and has shown us how to please him and wants us to seek him. You see the difference? 
He wants a relationship with us. There's a problem, however. If you recall in in Romans chapter 6, I said we relate to him as sons. In Romans 6, however, we're called slaves of sin. We are captive to sin. We're not sons of God by nature. So this is a this is a little this is a massive problem. We have a holy king who has shown us how to please him, but in our natural state we are completely alienated from him. And the answer to this, of course, is a relationship that comes through being united with Christ, the Son of God, and being integrated into, through that union, the family. We see very clearly this sort of integration, this sort of adoption is the theological term that's used, and it's it's not necessarily a theological term. We know about adoption. We have adoptions. People in this church are pursuing or in the process of adoption. This is what happens. Galatians chapter 4, 4 through 7, paints this picture perfectly. Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You see that? When we're adopted, now we have a dad. Now we can cry out to somebody. And that's the God we have here. Wants us to seek him. So that's the answer. He's provided the way through his son to be united to him and to then be able to call him father. Maybe another example of this is... uh, I don't really follow this a whole lot, but um, anybody know who, who Meghan Markle is? A few, okay, a few people. Um, <laughs> she, is, uh, she just married Prince Harry, okay? Um, and I, I would assume you've, you've maybe seen some stuff, even if you don't know all about her. I don't follow her life in depth, but if you go anywhere on the internet, you see... All these things constantly, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's borderline ridiculous. It is ridiculous. You know, she, she went to an event and she sat next to the queen and she, didn't, she crossed her legs and she shouldn't have done that, you know. Um, <laughs> she's wearing the wrong color at the wrong time and how could she, oh my goodness, her shoulder is showing in this thing and she's at this event and that's never been done before in 200 years. And I just, I don't know who keeps track of all this stuff, but uh, I'm sure somebody does and it's, it's great fun for them. But the example, the example here is that there are guidelines to being part of that royal family, right? There are things that are supposed to be done, things that are not supposed to be done. But I guarantee you that in this case, those who are married in or born into the royal family aren't concerned about losing their spot. Because they're in. They're part of the family. There may be some 
some rules and some boundaries and some things that are supposed to be done. And, and, and as part of being part of this royal family, you conduct yourself in a certain way. But at the end of the day, she's part of the royal family. She's in. In the same sort of way, we're in. We're part of the family. Through our union with Christ, we are now heirs. We are now part of that royal family. You see that you see the sort of the comfort that comes with that? To knowing, yeah, there are there are regulations and I don't want to turn it into just, you know, a bunch of laws or something like that. But there are ways that in the kingdom of God we are to conduct ourselves and we're seeing that throughout the sermon. But we know that through this relationship as being adopted children by the Father who never leaves us or forsakes us, we're in. We're good to go. I think that should bring us some comfort to know that as we go through and try to live out what we see, that our position isn't in question. Our place in this family is not in question. We're not going to be kicked out. So, we not only have a king and a father that wants us to seek him and have a relationship with him, but we also have a father that promises to equip us. So in in 7 and 8, we saw that God wants us to earnestly seek him and that he has provided a way for us to do that. There is a, a way for us to have a relationship. Humans who are lost in sin and who have offended a infinitely holy God, have been invited into a relationship with him through his son, and now we cry out to him as father. But we also see that he has given us what we need to live for him. We have a father who provides what we need to live for him. And this is verses 9 through 11. Jesus says, Or which one of you, if he if his son asks him for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? This sort of argumentation that he's using here is, is sort of from lesser to greater. And it's previously been used in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus talks about, you know, the, the sparrows, um, how, of what value are they compared to a, a man, to his sons? And yet he cares for them. He clothes the lilies. He takes care of his creation. And if he does this for something that is so obviously uh, less valuable than a human, than his children, how much more then is he going to take care of his children? It's the same argumentation that he's using just a few verses down where we're at here. He's saying, if, if you give good gifts to your children and you're, you're sinful parents, right? Even sinful parents want to give good gifts to their children. How much more the perfect father the Holy Father. How much more does God want to give good things to his children? And notice also, God doesn't give you what is useless. 
in this passage, we see that the, the child goes and asks his father, okay, so in this sort of hypothetical story, goes and asks his father for bread and a fish. So this is, in the first century world, this is everyday food. This is basic, basic living necessities, basic food. He goes to his father and asks for this, and his father gives him what he needs. He doesn't give him a, a rock that kind of looks like a piece of bread or, well, you know, this snake came out of the water. Here you go. He doesn't do that. He gives him what he needs, the basic food, the, the sustenance for his life. So the question then, what does God give us? Does he give us food? Does he give us provision? Does he give us the sustenance that we need for life? Well, I think that's definitely true. We see that in, at the end of chapter 6 in the sermon. We just, just previously, Jesus says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So certainly, God provides for what we need. I've experienced this. Everybody in this room has experienced it. God gives us exactly what we need. If you're still here, you have it. Even if it, it may seem like you have less than you need at times, you know that God sustains a passage that reminds me of this actually was the one that um, we heard last week in Psalm chapter 3, how we see the picture of the psalmist going to sleep and God sustaining him. And just the picture that that gives us. When you're asleep, you can do nothing. When you're asleep, you have no control. Uh, when you're asleep, you snore uh, like I do. Um, but when, we, when we're asleep, we have no control. We can't, even, we can't even try to pretend like we're in control when we're asleep. When we're asleep, we're just laying there. And I think that's a good, a good example of God's control and God's care that he has for us, his, his sustenance of us. He gives us what we need to eat in our clothes. He gives us more than enough. However, I think in this passage specifically, when we're talking about asking, seeking, and knocking and receiving from the Lord, I think we're not seeing a repetition. I don't think he's telling us he'll give you, God will give you everything you need and then, you know, a couple verses later saying it again. I would submit to you that what we're seeing here is not necessarily physical provision, which we definitely see God does do. The Father does provide for his children, obviously. But what we see here is the good things that the Father gives us. And I would say that in the whole context, that what we're seeing here is that these good things, this provision from the Father in these verses, this is spiritual enablement. This is spiritual things. This is why we read um, at the beginning of the service Psalm 107. The very last verse is, is a, a great little sentence. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. So there's the same, same phraseology there, but the reason I think of that is because what sort of good things really satisfy the soul? I mean, food 
you know, you have soul food or you have food that maybe makes you feel good. But the Lord gives us good things to satisfy our soul. So that's why, that's why we looked at that. So we see that this, this is a common way that it can be talked about. Moreover, in Luke, specifically this same passage, 9 through 11, in, in Luke's account of Jesus saying this, reads as follows. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So I think Luke kind of clues us in a little bit here as to the fact that when Jesus is using this teaching, and undoubtedly He he said these things multiple times, um, that He's getting at a spiritual provision. And and specifically in Luke, He's talking about the Holy Spirit directly. Another maybe line of evidence or, or maybe something that, that can lend credence to the idea that we should see this as spiritual provision. Again, remember the Galatians passage that we just read, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Again, this spirit. What I want to point out is just that there's a connection here that we see in Scripture between the spirit being around in our lives and our connection to God as Father. That you don't have one without the other. You don't have God the Father without God the Spirit. And I think that's, that's, that's really what we're seeing here. So our Father has given us exactly what we need for life in the kingdom. The Spirit of God. The Spirit of the kingdom, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, and the kingdom also have, have been traditionally put together. We see in Ezekiel 36, we see the coming of the Spirit um, being poured out like water um, and, and how that's tied to the age of the kingdom. We see in Joel the coming of the Spirit being tied to the kingdom. We see these things tied together even in, the, in Matthew. We see John the Baptist at the very beginning in Matthew chapter 3. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John's saying something's coming. Jesus is coming, and he's he's about to do something kind of crazy here. He's bringing the Holy Spirit with him. He's baptizing you with the Holy Spirit. Later on in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus, defending his actions and talking about casting out demons, responds to Pharisees saying, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. See, Jesus is is tying these two things together as well. He's saying, look, if the Spirit is here and active and doing these things, and they're things that are mentioned in the book of Joel, then the kingdom has come. If the Spirit is here, the kingdom has come. So there is that integral relationship between the coming of the Spirit and the Spirit with us in the kingdom, and being enabled to live in the kingdom. So I think all of these things together point us to the fact that what we are seeing in these verses is the spiritual provision from the Father giving us good things, giving us enablement to live for Him, giving us enablement to discern when we've maybe missed something, giving us the discernment to know whether I am looking at my brother's eye with a just heart, with a heart that's not 
judgmental, whether I'm really hating somebody, whether I am living for the kingdom in how I spend my money, in what I, what I follow, what I read, what I do, what I look at. Our Father has given us exactly what we need. We see this also in the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. I won't take the time to read that, but we see the answer, right? The Father has given us the answer. So when we, we rattle off that list like I did of all these things that we're told to do and it's part of kingdom life, we're not just left high and dry and just try harder or come up with extra rules to follow. We're given exactly what we need. We're given the Holy Spirit to come into us and bear fruits of patience and love to cause us to be humble and meek, to be long-suffering. That's what we have. So the impossibility of looking at all of this instruction, we know that we've not been left to ourselves by our Father. He's given us exactly what we need. We are as adopted sons, not as slaves as outcasts any longer. A great sort of quote that I wanted to read for you here, and I think Phil's actually read this before, it's um, from J.I. Packer talking about just the amazing privilege, the amazing thing that we have when we talk about adoption, when we talk about what we have as sons. He says of adoption that it is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Higher even than justification. Because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Do you do you get that? I know in, in my life it's, it's a massive struggle. Even week to week, coming and hearing, hearing the preaching or, or reading the scriptures and seeing how should I adapt this to my life? What should I do here? What should I do? What should I do there? Do I run to the Lord as my Father? Do I go into him as my father? Or do I just see him as sort of this reclusive king figure who's given me some rules to obey? Do I take advantage of this position I have? Do I realize that with the power of the Holy Spirit, that I can then discern my, my motives, that that has given me the power to obey, and that the Father has given me exactly what I need to follow him? More often than not, it's easy to forget this. So, I think what we see here in these verses, and I hope is evident, is that what we get is not stuff. What we get is not 
everything we could possibly ask for, right? We have a perfect father. My child can ask for a lot of things. We were just talking in the car ride on the way over here. Um, he, he, he picked up a rock at the park, and he said he wanted to keep it for his pretend rock collection. And I'm like, well, don't you have a rock collection now that you have a rock? But anyway, so they were walking, they were walking back from the park, and um, he saw a massive boulder. And he's like, can I, can I have that rock? And, uh, you know, I, 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 my wife was with him, and so I just kind of laughed at that because I, I said to her, I was like, you should have told him, if, if you can carry it home, you can have it. Um, just the, the silliness of it. But just sort of an, as an example of uh, we have a perfect father, right, who provides what we need. He doesn't give us the silly things we ask for. And I guarantee you a lot of things we ask for are really silly when it comes down to it. If you have kids, you know they're dead serious about the silly things they ask for. You know, he wanted that rock. Um, and, and I think maybe we don't realize that sometimes. But we have a father who, who knows what we need. He knows what we don't need. And he wants to provide for us. He wants us to seek him for it. He wants a relationship with us. So we get exactly what we need. So how then do we, how then do we live this out? How then do we do, we do this? What can, we, what can we take away from this reality that we are related to the king? That we are in the kingdom, but we aren't just as subjects, we are as sons. I would say, first and foremost, looking through all of this, who's, who is your father? Because what we've just talked about is for those who have been adopted as sons by the power of the Holy Spirit through the blood of Jesus Christ. If that is not you, if you are not trusting in Jesus as your way to the Father, then you are not a child of the Father. You see, the only way to be rightly related, even to an earthly king, is to be joined by somebody who is in that line, right? In the case of God... That's his son, Jesus Christ. And only in union with him are we able to be in union with the Father and have him as our king and as our father. If you say, yes, I I believe in in Jesus, He, he is, I am rightly related to the Father, then I would say, see your inability. Notice your inability. Like I said, sort of at the beginning, we come to these, these passages week in and week out and we see this instruction that we're given and it's real easy to kind of, you know, maybe apply something here and there and kind of forget a little bit about everything that's come before that. But, but pay attention and see, see that we're not able. We can't even, we can't, we can't do all these things in and of ourselves. We can't muster up the strength and the courage to live for God and to please Him. 
We cannot be perfected by the flesh, as Paul says in, in Galatians. It's only by the power of the Spirit. See your inability and run to the Father who cares for you and wants to provide exactly what you need. He's not too busy. He's not abusive. He's not absent. He's not unloving. He's the opposite. He loves and cares for us. He is the perfect Father. Pray with me.